0: Hello and Shalom. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I'm your host, Joe Amon. we got a great show ahead, so buckle up and hang on. Here we go. Yet another Parsha that is absolutely chock-full of goodies... That I won't have time to get to today. But I want to address a couple things in this week's Parsha, Parsha Amor. Um just touch a couple things that I find interesting, and then I want to, uh, go into a, more of an actual lesson. So, um, the book of Leviticus, of Va'ikra, one of the names for it is Torat Koanim. Torat Koanim, which is the instructions for the priest. It's like the priestly handbook, right? and i just find that really interesting uh because we have talked about before the name the name of the book that we have vaikra means what and he called right and he called so on one hand um we are all about God's call on our lives. It's, que- it's a question that we ask and that we wrestle with from the time we are young, from the time we are junior high, teenager, on through adulthood. What is God's will? What is God's call on my life, right? Right? And we, we we go through, uh, you know, we go through religious groups, denominations, whatever, and we see the pastor and we see the, the deacon and we see the, you know, maybe the prophet or the evangelist or the, you know, the apostle, whatever. And we see all of these different people that seem to have a really clear call on their lives. And if we don't have that, we start to kind of wonder, well, like, does God have a call on my life? Does God have a call? Do I have a call? What is God's call? And we've talked about this before that we actually have a book called and he called and we don't ever read it. Right? This is the this is, book is describing the call of God on our lives. And we don't ever read it. The other thing that we that we believe or that we that we subscribe to most most do um, is something called the priesthood of all believers. That as a believer in Yeshua, as a a a child of, of Yeshua, a child of God through Yeshua, that we are made a priest in the kingdom of God. Now that has a lot of nuance to it. And it's not just as simple as going, well, I said a sinner's prayer, now I'm a priest. It's not that simple. But if it were that simple... There's a problem still because as a priest, we don't know what the heck we're doing. You and I have never been a priest of anything. And being a priest is a very specific job, as we have seen, as we've read through the book of Vayikra this year, right? Being a priest is a very specific thing. Again, there is an operational manual for being a priest. Torah Kohanim, the book of Vayikra, again, Christians never read it. So, for two good reasons that Christians believe theologically, we should be highly invested, highly invested in the Book of Leviticus. We never touch it, and it's really sad. So, Torah Kohanim. So, in this, uh, in this um, parsha again, there's there's a ton of stuff going on. Um we have uh purity rules for the priests. We've talked about this last week a little bit. Um but we have uh two different phrases that are used to identify a priest. Number one is uh uh Ba'al Kiri. Ba'al Kiri which basically means, you know the you know the word Ba'al which means what? Lord of, Lord of right? Or master. Uh Ba'al Kiri is basically a master of impurity. So if a priest has a discharge or touches a body or uh, some of the things that are talked about in this week's Parsha, um, he is known as a, a Baal Kiri. He's a master of impurity. That's that's just the name that's given to him. And um, so he cannot, um, he is prohibited from coming anywhere and serving in the azarah, which is the main courtyard here surrounding the temple building, right? Cannot come into this courtyard. Um once he washes he is then called by another name called a tuval yom tuval yom yom means what day right a tuval yom is someone who is unclean until nightfall which in hebrew starts the next day right so uh, before the cleansing process begins, he is a Baal Kiri. After the cleansing process begins, he is a tuvoyom. Yom. It's a different classification. Um, and changes where he can access and what he can do. It's important. These things are important. Again, it's so intriguing to me how we we walk around going like, we're the temple, we're the temple. Don't know anything about the temple. We walk around going, we're priest, we're priest. Don't know anything about how the priesthood operates. In today's day and age you can be whatever you want to be just because you identify as that if i woke up tomorrow morning and my dream had always been to be a black woman i could be it and none of you could tell me that i couldn't because then you would get canceled how much does a straight white guy really know about being a black woman I mean, really? I'm going to tell you. You might be going like, "I don't know how much do you know." <laughs> I'd be interested to find out. The answer is nothing, right? The answer is nothing. So understand when I make this observation. How long have believers said we're the temple? We're the temple, and we have no. Cl- we identify as a temple, but have no idea what that means. We identify as priests, a very holy job in the kingdom, and we have no idea. We, we have no idea what we're doing. We have no clue. It's as crazy, as crazy as a man identifying as a woman or a woman identifying as a man. Now you can say, well, "Yeah, but Yeshua made us priests." Oh, okay, I'll take you. At, I'll take you on that point. Yeshua made us priests. The question still stands: Do you know anything about what it means to be in the priesthood, to function as a priest? In Ezekiel and Yeheskel, we read, we read the job of the priests. Verse twenty-three of chapter forty-four: "They shall instruct my people." So, if you're going to claim priesthood, the first thing you need to know about yourself is that you are an instructor. You're a teacher. Now we know you can't teach without doing. You can't teach without knowing. You can't teach without practicing yourself. Right? They are to instruct my people, verse 23, concerning the differences between holy and ordinary. Full stop. We talked last week about the, about how holiness in the temple is not moral. This week, if I have time from this rant, I'm going to contradict everything I said last week. I know some of you hate when I do that. I love it. I've gotten very comfortable with holding two contradictory things at once and going, this is opposite of this, but we can bring them together and make a synergy. And that's why I do that. That's why I tell you, that's why I contradict myself all the time. It's not, on, it's not accident. It's not by accident. It's on purpose because two opposite things can be true. And we have to figure out a way to make them work together. And that's what wrestling with the scriptures is all about. So the first job of the priest listed in Ezekiel is to teach the difference between holy and ordinary. Do you know the difference between holy and ordinary? Do you know what holiness even is? Do you know what God considers ordinary? Do we know the differences? Well, which lens do we use? Which criteria do we use? See? Go ahead and be a priest. Let them inform them the difference between contaminated and clean. Do you know the rules of Tameh and Tahor? Do you know make somebody Tameh? Do you know what process it is to go from Tameh to Tahor? Next, verse 24, concerning a grievance, let them stand in judgment. Oh, boy, I know a lot of people that love this part of the job description. Just let me handle it. If they'd have asked me, I'd have told them, What they should do is, if I was their, if I was their parent, I'd tell you what I'd do. To stand in judgement. Here's the thing though, by standing in judgment, is that when you stand in judgment, you're one concentric circle closer to the Holy of Holies. Do you realize that? Judges have a higher level of kedusha than non-judges, which makes you closer to the presence, which makes you more accountable this is yeshua gets into judging of course and we've used we've weaponized those scriptures until they're we're blue in the face i think that you can discern you better be able to discern so that you don't get yourself in a pickle over and over and over which some people go like well i just you know satan's just attacking me no you make really dumb choices this satan's going like well i got to touch that one they kind of take care of themselves Stand in judgment and according to my laws, they are to adjudicate it. So, you have to judge cases between people according to the Torah. And I'm not talking about like broad Torah ethics, like, well, I know the Torah is about saving life, so I judge this way. No. Can you, could you make a legal case from the Torah, citing the Torah and its interpretations and its traditions, could you make a legal case in, in judging between one person and another one? You wonder why a lot of Jewish people, why, why lawyers are very prevalent in the Jewish community? Because that's what they grow up doing. That's what they grow up doing. Because that's what the Torah commands. And then lastly, my teachings and decrees regarding my appointed times, they are to protect. And my Sabbaths, they are to sanctify. So protecting the commandments and sanctifying the Sabbaths. Again, which means you can't teach something you're not doing. It goes on, though. To a human corpse, they are not to become contaminated except for father, mother, son, daughter, brother, sister, who have never been married. And it talks about cleansing and ministering. And then, it shall be a heritage for them. What shall be a heritage? That vocation that he just outlined, and him as the giver of that vocation. So not cars and houses and boats and land. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But what I'm saying is if you're gonna identify as a priest, then you better be willing to take on the identity, become that, and not just wear a label. You better be willing to become that. If you, and if you believe all the more that Yeshua, part of his death, gives you that ability, gives you that privilege, all the more we better be incredibly hyper serious about Knowing what that means and working to become that for the sake of his name. Uh, I want to touch on the blasphemer blasphemer a little bit in Viacra like, 24. And this is really, really important because we get this question a lot. So I'm just going to take some time to, to show you why. So that if you have questions about it or if you ever run into somebody that has questions about it and wants to argue with you... Um, especially if you're on a social media platform. Um, I would say don't do it, but I mean, it's up to you. Some of you, I know, you like to get in the nitty-gritty. So, what is it about this blasphemer? What does he do that's so bad? So awful that, in fact, he has to be brought before Moses, the judges, the elders, and then he gets out of the camp. They stone him to death. So, before we even talk about, go into it, what is at stake for blasphemy in this passage? Death. You lose your life for whatever blasphemy is. Now, what did he do in this passage? You remember when we read it? He blasphemed the what? The name. Yudhe Vavhe. He blasphemed the name. Blasphemy of the name in this section brings the death penalty. How many of you looking forward to dying? How many of you have complete and utter control over your tongue at all times? People have questions about, they have critiques about, we say Hashem, the name. We say Adonai, my Lord. Well, don't you know the pronunciation of the name? Don't you know that you can pronounce God's name? Yeah, I know. I've studied all 1,700 different pronunciations and why they're valid and why you put the vowels here and there and how the va used to be a wa, and all that. I know, yeah, I got it. I got all of that. But here's why I'm very careful and why I choose to say Hashem. Because I know me. I know me and I know that I could say the holiest name in existence and then not 30 seconds later, I might be cussing somebody for cutting me off in traffic. Now, you may not be that undisciplined. I'm just telling you about me. And having those two things that close together is blasphemy of the name. And it constitutes the death penalty. You know what? I'll, I'll go easy on you. Maybe you don't cuss people out in traffic. Maybe you don't curse at all. Good for you. But maybe you got a really bad habit about talking about people. Oh, Judgy McJudgerson. Maybe you got a maybe you got a way of say, you got a, a habit of saying the name you'd vav in prayer, and then getting on the prayer line and gossiping about people. But gossip next to the name is blasphemy, and it carries the death penalty. You see. This is why the sages in their wisdom put barriers around the name. Not only to protect the name against reputation, but to protect us because we are who we are. It's the same reason why we don't write the name on paper. Because where does most paper end up? In the trash. Do you understand? We're like, yeah, but it's just some. This goes back to our inability to really understand priesthood and holiness. Yeah, but it's just some letter. It's just ink on a page. We're not actually putting the name on the page. We're not actually putting God's reputation on the page. You're disqualified from being a priest. Sorry. You're not a priest. I don't care if you believe in the priesthood of all believers. I don't care if Yeshua came to your room at night with a magic wand and poof, made you a priest like the movie Aladdin. You're, I'm sorry, you're not a priest because you don't understand the difference between holy and profane. This is how serious this is. It's so serious that there's actually a section about it in the Torah. This is why we are careful about the name. Anything that the name is on or in, we are careful about. I try to do my best about this. This book contains the letters yud Vavhe. vav I try not to put anything on top of it. Again, God's not going to strike me down if I do, but it's about having that sense of holiness, having that sense of reverence, which is something I really appreciate, I have to say, about the Catholic Church. They have a beautiful sense for reverence, and it's taught to their children, their grandchildren, their grandchildren. I love non-denominational churches as well, but you walk into them, and kids are running around and hanging from the ceiling, and there's no place that's sacred. And so there's got to be a balance somewhere that we have a sense of the sacred. We have a sense of what's holy. Besides that, we have no room calling ourselves the temple or the priesthood. When, when the New Testament gives these allusions to us being priests, or our first Peter two nine calls us a, a royal priesthood, we shouldn't read it like, oh, this is a, a gift you've been given. Yay, look at me, I won the lottery. It should be a classification that now we have to ascend to. We have to not earn it but we have to deserve it. Maintain it. You have to pursue, yeah, that identity. Yeah. Absolutely. And be resp- yeah, absolutely. And the priestly job is a big job. What we really in in what we really want is we really want to be prophets. That's really what we want. I mean in the sense of telling the future. We'd all like to be that genie prophet. But also in the sense of we want to just lay into people and tell them the truth. And by God, fire and brimstone and yada yada and all the other stuff. So last week, uh, we talked about how in the temple in the ancient Near East, Holiness is not moral. And I told you that I did not fully believe that statement, but I wanted to make it because there is a spectrum of understanding about this. In the ancient Near East, I told you about the conversation I had with my teacher, Yoel, my Hebrew teacher, about ancient religions and how we know um, that they did not have a moral component to their worship. Their worship was their God said, go take this animal, kill it, drain its blood, and throw its blood on this rock. You have worshiped me. Now go about your business. That is, that is the height of holiness in most, in, in all of these ancient Near East cultures surrounding Israel. This week, I want to talk about how holiness is absolutely comprised of moral ethic. Without morality, without a moral ethic, there can be no holiness. So we're going to be on the opposite side of the spectrum this week. So let me ask you guys this. I asked you a question last week about holiness. I'll ask you the same question in a different way. What are some characteristics of holiness as you think about it? What are some characteristics of holiness? Righteousness, okay. Right ruling, right decision-making, good. What else? Self-control, very good. What else? Discipline. Discipline, very good. What else? Peace, very good. So see these answers you're giving are all moral answers. They're all moral, right? Nobody said making the bread right for the altar, right? Nobody said washing before you go and serve, right, in the Azarah, Nobody <laughs> said any ritualistic thing, we all talk about being moral, right? We understand this. The beauty about what the Torah does and what Hashem does and what the people of Israel received in the wilderness, and we see it here in this week's Parsha in Emor. Emor is all about instructions for the priests. We've talked about this already. And before, I mean, we're not even going to talk about festivals today um, because there's just too much else to get to. Um, but at the onset of this week's Parsha, what Hashem instructs Moshe to teach the priests about are about contamination, right? And that's a ritual thing about cuts or gashes, and about who you marry, and and how they're desecrated, and all this, and then the kohenim, uh, the, the kohen uh excuse me, um, and uh, corpse impurity, and all of these, and then we got disqualifying blemishes, which are not necessarily the priest's fault. Uh, they could be things that we are we are you know are born with or whatever. Um, and then we have uh, safeguarding the Terumah offering and and blemished animals, and all these things. And then we get to the desecration of God's name and these all seem to have a uh to have a ritualistic they're all ritualistic in other words if you have this thing you can't go here right and yet the torah also instructs us all about things like what we read last week love your neighbor as yourself equal weights and measure, measures justice lifting the oppressed, freeing the slave, all of these incredibly moral and not ritualistic things that we do in order to, to show who God is in the world. So it's almost like we have these two sides of the holiness spectrum. We have the ritual side, and then we have the ethical side or the moral side. Do you see that? And what's, what's crazy and cool about this is that you can be right on ritually. You can be clean, you can be pure, you can be whatever. But you can have a really crappy moral ethic. And you can still go and throw offerings on the altar as a priest. On the other hand, you could be fantastic morally. You could be upright as the day is long, perfect in all your ways. And yet there's some places in the temple you can't enter because you're not that holy. Do you see that? Isn't that wild? We have these two worlds that exist. Thankfully, Scripture is so good to us. Last week, we talked about the priestly role, and that is the ritualistic side of holiness, right? And that's not bad. Ritual is not bad. I know I came from a church where ritual was the devil, and religion was the devil. The problem is, you leave ritual, you leave all discipline and constraint, there is no framework, there's no structure, there's no nothing. There's no expectation, there's no anything. We say things like, well, it's not about religion, it's about relationship. And I understand that's very healing for some people in some seasons of your life. But for a lot of people, that just means I don't want any accountability or rules. Or it just means they hurt me and I don't like the way they did it. So I don't believe in religion anymore. What's well, stupid because every, literally everything we do as it relates to our worship to god is religion we went out and just made a new religion that's all we did we just yeah we just made a religion reactionary to the religion we left that's all it is we got weird non denominational we don't have a we don't have a denomination you became a denomination <laughs> so we have these two opposing spheres of holiness thankfully hashem gave us people groups to represent them so we could identify with them really well so the priests the kohanim represent the ritual side of holiness again which is vitally important people think ritual is cold and dead and boring and whatever maybe so and maybe you're just not wired for ritual so much maybe you just maybe you're super creative Maybe that's how your brain works and ritual just like it it suffocates you. Maybe so. But that doesn't mean that you can just throw it away because it's not important, right? Then God gave us the prophets that represent the moral and ethical side of holiness. And I just want to read a few passages because um, I think you'll get where I'm going. And then we're going to hopefully come to a synergy Um, as we finish this up. So we're going to be in the the first chapter of Isaiah. Uh, A vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Yotam, Ahaz, uh, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen, heavens, and hear earth, for Adonai has spoken. Sons I have raised and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox, which is kind of a dumb animal, right? The ox knows its owner. And the donkey, which is not dumb but is stubborn, knows its manager. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Oi, a sinful nation, a people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons dealing corruptly. They have abandoned Adonai. They have despised Israel's holy one. They have turned backwards. Where will you be struck again as you stray away more and more? The whole head is sick. The whole heart faint. From the foot to the head there is no soundness. Wounds, bruises, and raw sores. What does that sound like? Wounds, bruises, and raw sores. It sounds like tummy, tame. Not pressed, nor bandaged, nor softened with oil. See how the prophet is using priestly language? Verse seven Your land is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, your fields, strangers devour it in your presence, a desolation overthrown by strangers. So the daughter of Zion is left as a sukkah in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Unless Adonai Savaot had left us a small remnant, we would have been as Sodom, we would have been as Gomorrah. Hear the word of Adonai, you rulers of Sodom, give ear to the Torah of our law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. For what is it to me, the multitude of your sacrifices, says Adonai? I am full of burnt offerings of rams and fat of fed animals. I have no delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or he goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this of your hand, trampling my courts? Bring no more worthless offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Shabbat, the calling of convocations, I cannot endure it. Iniquity with solemn assembly your new moons and your festivals my soul hates they are a burden to me i am weary to bear them when you spread out your hands i will hide my eyes from you when you multiply prayers i will not hear your hands are full of blood next i want to read from hosea chapter 6 verse 6 i'll just it's just one verse i'll read it for i desire mercy not sacrifice an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Amos chapter 5 verses 21 to 27. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. So it seems like we have these two warring almost groups in scripture, in the Hebrew scriptures. We have the priests who say this is how to be holy. It's about ultimate, it's about clean, clear, precise, perfected lines of ritual and how to act. And then you also have then these prophets who go like, nah, nah, no, 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 that's not the way. And if we're not careful, when we read it, we can read it as though God is speaking through the prophets and God is saying he doesn't want temple worship at all anymore. Do away with the temple, do away with the offerings, do away with the priesthood, do away with all that. And what we don't realize is in the back of our minds, when we read it like that, what's going on is New Testament verses that we know that says that. Yeshua was the last offering, that we are a priesthood, that we are the temple. Do you get where I'm going? So when we read this, we hear God saying through the prophets, do away with all of the temple offering priest stuff because I have a plan to replace it later on with me. Do you you see how that little bit of psychology Affects how we read the scripture. Isn't that scary? And so we are making the prophets. No. We're making God say something he never said. But we read it as do away with all that stuff. Because I have a replacement for it later down the road. See. We still got a little bit of replacement theology in us. And we didn't even know it. That's why we gotta keep digging. We gotta this is why we keep digging in the Torah, why in the Tanakh, in the prophets. We keep digging. Because as we dig into the word, the word digs into us. And it digs all the stuff out, separating between even bone and marrow. Right. So the beautiful thing about I do believe, and I love seeing this when I read it now, and hopefully now that you you, we've kind of talked about, you can see it. I love when I read through the prophets, through the Torah and the prophets. And we see it kind of from week to week in the the Parsha and the Haftarah. The Parsha, especially in Leviticus, is very priestly. It's very, it's Torah Kohanim, right? You do this, you do that, you do that. And when you read it, you can almost kind of think like, this is why we struggle with Leviticus a lot, is because we go like, well, how do we apply this? What do we learn from this? Because it's not super moral. I will say this, excuse me, as a balance to this. The temple of Israel, the God of Israel, the Torah of Israel, Hashem himself, builds in morality to the priesthood that is not existent in surrounding cultures. Right? And we see that in different places in the Torah. It's still ritual heavy, but there is a morality there in order to be a priest, you have to have a moral upstanding that is not, is not necessarily uh, the case in other nations, Israel stands above and alone in that. But if you read parshas like this week's parsha, and you go well, like, "Where's the morality?" It's hard for us to apply some of the stuff that we find in Vayikra because it's not moral; it's ritual, and we don't have a temple, and we don't do offerings, so we don't know where to put it. Like where? Do, how do we? How do we place it? On the other hand, we get to the haftarah, the priestly side. I mean the pro- prophetic side, excuse me, and we really like that because that's something we can latch onto because it is moral and ethical. And it's like these two brothers that are, that are playing tug of war with holiness for which side is gonna be, which side do we need to focus on? Do we need to worry about ritual or do we need to worry about moral? What's more important? If I were to ask you, I would bet, not putting words in your mouth, but I would bet most of you guys in this room and most believers modern day would say that more, the moral component of holiness is more important than the ritual. I would believe that that would be the, the general consensus by, by a pretty good majority. That it's, it's more about being morally upright than it is about some kind of ritual adherence. And I think to all, to our defense, I think in this day and age where we are today, it needs to be that way. I think that's natural, and that's the way it should be. What I'm asking you is not to forget the ritual side, not to forget the stringencies. Because, see, the, the challenge we can have in only a moral ethic to holiness and not a ritual ethic, the, the, prob- the challenges that we can have is that morality is, 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 is a sliding scale. Morality, where ritual holiness is very precise, right? It's very precise. You have a white spot on your skin, you go to the priest, they say, no, no gusto, right? You have, there's, there's very clear, um, there are very clear delineations where you can go and where you can't go in sacred space as we get to the tip. There's, it's very clear, right? No, there's not, there's, there's not a lot of question at all whether or not you are authorized to enter the next level of holiness. Super clear. So in order to be holy, you just have to do those things. However, in morality, it's, mm, really sketchy. What's morally, what's more morally holy? To, to take some value that you see as right, and put that up against the value that somebody else sees is a priority but not the same as yours. You see what I mean? There's there's a lot of gray area. There's a lot of spectrum in moral holiness. However, we have to have a blending. This is why we need the idea of ritual holiness. Because It's going to give structure to our morality. It's going to give structure to some of these things that we have questions about. And just in your personal life, it may help you order things a little bit. So how do we include a little more ritual holiness into our, listen, I think, as I've said before, I don't think anybody sitting in this room or anybody watching on live stream, I don't think anybody goes out on a daily basis and intentionally tries to live an unholy life. I don't think that's a thing. I think every one of us, and I know most of you fairly well, even a bunch of you online I know fairly well, we do our best to intentionally live a moral, morally holy life. We are consumed by that. It is our goal. It is our drive. It is what we feel called to do by Yeshua, and it's what we feel inspired to do by the Spirit, which is all right. But what do we do to help maybe include some of that structure, and some of that definiteness to our our life. This is why we've been going. One of the reasons why we've been going through the Sidur on Wednesday nights. And for those of you that are here or that join online, um, I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. It has been a fascinating and beautiful series of studies over the last I don't know. It's been six weeks, eight weeks, whatever it's been. Um, it's been incredibly beautiful. To go through the siddur, parts of the siddur, and, and see what, how does it look, how did it look for the Jewish people when they lost their temple, when they lost the center of their ritual world? How did they adapt? What did they do to fuse ritual and moral? And and for me, that is what the siddur is. It's this fusion and this transition from a ritual state of holiness to bringing that temple holiness that only existed in the temple out into our everyday lives through prayer and observance and practice. And that's what the Siddur is. Because what it does is it brings so many of those temple ideas and it puts them into everyday practice. It puts them into words. It puts them into prayer that we use. And that's just a beautiful example. So maybe it's doing something like the Siddur. Where you're starting to pray these ancient prayers that some that were are as old as the return from the Babylonian exile, even the Amidah, the standing prayer. Maybe it's, and this has been helpful for me, maybe it's just learning more about temple practice, about the offerings. Maybe it's learning about the sanctity of a priest and what his life was like and what, what it meant. Just having a mental conditioning about ritual holiness will help you to understand a little bit better that balance between morality which is kind of i can do kind of what i want within the bounds and ritual one last thing i want to mention i think is really interesting driving here this morning i thought about this as temple centric as sacred space focused as the Tanakh is There's one thing that's severely missing from the Gospels. We've been through the book of Leviticus, right? It's all about offerings. There's offerings on literally every page. So something significant is missing from the Gospels when it's talking about Yeshua. We never hear about Yeshua bringing an offering. Is there any account that you can think of where Yeshua brings an offering? Never. Now, does that mean that he didn't bring an offering? Do we see Yeshua going up to the temple? Yes. Yes. And he's going for, usually, Yeshua's not hanging out of the temple all day, right? Which is another important part. He's not just hanging, he doesn't just live in the temple courts, right? He's out and about in the highways and byways. But he does go to the temple When? Shlosh Regalim, the three pilgrimage festivals, Unleavened Bread, Shavuot, and Sukkot. Here's the thing. The Torah commands when you come to into the presence of Hashem during those festivals, you are not to come empty-handed. So by circumlocution, by default, Yeshua had to bring offerings when he went to the temple. He's required by the Torah, and he's a good Jew. Yet the Gospels don't make a big deal about it at all. They don't make a big deal about him bringing offerings at all. Now, either that's because it's understood as, a, as an observant Jew, that's just what you do, and it's just part of life, or the gospel writers are intentionally portraying Yeshua more in the office of prophet than priest. He's a prophet like unto Moses, not a priest like unto Aaron. And I think there could be a couple of reasons for that. Number one, because the priestly idea, Yeshua being a priest was not in the necessarily, it wasn't a thing that maybe the Melchizedek thing was floating around, but that maybe may be all. It's a little bit later, maybe in Paul's writings, that we all start to kind of get the priesthood thing developed a little bit more. But also because the priesthood at the time of Yeshua was kind of no bueno. Not, not, not kind of. They were just flat out corrupt. Right? Yeah, they were immoral. <laughs> Absolutely. They had it ritually. They were immoral. And what is the centerpiece of Yeshua's teachings? Morality. 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 Given in what form? The Sermon on the Mount, right? That's the centerpiece of, 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 Yeshua, of all Yeshua is about. Is the Sermon on the Mount, it's all about morality, right? And so the Gospels frame Yeshua, rightly so, as more of a prophet who is doing the offerings he's doing kedusha he's cleansing when he goes to the table he's doing all those things you have to do but his focus is on who you are as a person not what you do realistically or, or ritualistically rather but we can't forget that he did the ritual stuff he did the ritual stuff and that made gave structure to the morality that he taught right the holiness that he taught Is it because Yeshua foresaw the destruction of the temple and and foreseeing the destruction of the temple focused on the moral side of holiness because there wasn't going to be a ritual side anymore? I don't know. One thing I learned this week that I think is really interesting is that while Yeshua was alive, they were expanding the temple mount So the Temple Mount under Solomon was one size, and then the Hasmoneans, the heroes of Hanukkah, when they took over, they expanded the Temple Mount. Not the Temple building, but the, the, the platform. And then Herod, the Great, he expanded the Temple Mount again. That third Herodian construction of the Temple Mount, of the Temple Walls, was going on while Yeshua was alive. If you've ever been to Israel or you've seen pictures, you have the western wall, right? The Kotel, where you go and pray and you you know put prayers in the wall and that kind of stuff. And then you have the southern wall, the southern steps. If you've been to Israel, you've probably been to the southern steps, where you have the beautiful gates and all these things, right? Those two walls that we see today were being constructed during Yeshua's lifetime. So today in our gospel parsha... Our right, gospel portion of the, of the, the Parsha. Yeshua makes a statement about tearing down the walls, the temple, and rebuilding it in three days. This is why history is, and temple history especially, is so flipping cool. When Yeshua makes that statement, what is the landscape he's in? He's making that statement, and in this part of the gospel, he's in Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem and he says, See this temple that we don't know? It's under construction. <laughs> There's construction happening as he's saying this. I'll tear it down and I'll rebuild it in three days. Here's another cool piece of this it's called the Herodian Wall or the Herodian Building Project. Herod had been dead for like 20, 30 years, he was long dead by the time the walls that he designed to enlarge the temple were even being built. And Yeshua goes, see this? I'll tear it down, and then I'll rebuild it in three days. And then the gospel gives, you know, some gospels give this, oh, he was talking about his body. But you know what else he was talking about? Who's who's the real king? Herod or me? Herod died in his building, project on the temple wasn't even finished yet i'll tear it down and i'll rebuild it in three days you see how oh my gosh that just make that that opens up the context so much it's incredible so holiness ritual and moral i want to encourage us to develop both sides of that i'll leave i'll finish off with this quote i've quoted many times and I'll, i'll butcher the quote but it's you you'll get the the gist made by a scholar that I like a lot named Pete Inns. Most of you know who Pete Inns is. Something to the fact that when my heart when my faith can't can't, you know, process everything that I'm asking about asking God about, my practice sustains me. And this was this is such an important statement in my life because I'm a questioner. I'm a seeker. I'm curious. I'm going to find something in Scripture that doesn't look right and I'm going to pick it and pick at it and pick at it and pick at it like I've done my fingernails ever since I was a kid. I just can't help it. I'm a picker. That's what I'm going to do. I'm curious. The challenge is that scripturally and theologically that can get you in a lot of trouble because you can Ask questions down to the point where you don't even know if you believe anything anymore. But when we get to places where we don't know what we believe anymore, it's our practice that holds us. I come to Shabbat. I do pray. That's what I do. Ritual is going to hold us when nothing else can.